let's jump into the film. Now that we've pretty much gone over everything else, uh, yeah. let's get into the film, uh, which starts with uh, voiceover, of course. Well, it starts with some very fancy logos, but it starts with voiceover from, <laughs> from Colonel Tom Parker uh, in his uh, Dutch accent, um, which apparently Colonel Tom Parker deliberately... Oh, Dutch. Yeah, deliberately tried to integrate into American society, so he made himself sound like someone from the South rather than having a noticeably Dutch accent. Um, did he, though? He did, apparently. He tried very hard to, like, to hide his Dutch accent. Well, I, maybe the real Tom Parker did. Whatever yeah. Tom Hanks was doing. When somebody somebody made some com- comment about, like, Colonel Sanders or something, and I was like... That's in the film. I, I, I'm not... Yeah, no, I know. I'm yeah. saying in the movie, somebody said that, and I was like, "Are we listening to? The, are we listening to the same guy? I mean, he doesn't sound Dutch, but he doesn't sound like an American either." Uh, sounds like Tommy Wiseau, <laughs> or like yeah. Borat. <laughs> yeah, uh, we have the, the opening song. Tell us that the snowman's coming, uh, and this is something that he'll like refer to throughout the whole thing about how he was a you know a snowman. And we see a sign that says Colonel Tom Parker. Snowman's League of America, which is like a really weird, like banner for him to have up. We see that he's on the floor, um, and he tells us that some people will think that he's the villain of this here story. That being the most Dutch kind of pronunciation of this story, he can put. He does it a lot throughout the film. He throws in this here and that them, and those kind of like he just kind of does a weird um, thing. We see, you know, the International Hotel, and you know, it's in its fourth great year in 1973. Um, it's funny because this film will give the impression that like Elvis was trapped there like nonstop for four straight years, but he did basically a month in like March and a month in September, and then he had the rest of the year free to do whatever he wanted. So it wasn't like that bad. Like it wasn't like a permanent residence. It was just like a couple of times a year he would return back to this hotel. Um, you know, we see that there's a book called The Colonel and the King, which is a shocking tell-all about the relationship between these two people. We see Elvis walking down the hall. Um, and, you know, he kind of collapses and Colonel Tom Parker comes into frame and says that that boy needs to get on stage tonight. And so we see, you know, in a ton of split screens, we have drugs being put into him. We see him putting on his rings and his, you know, necklace. And we see people screaming in the audience. And we see some karate moves from Elvis, which you get like. Elvis loved karate. That is true. He did. Him. Yeah. And he yeah. he had his like costumes in Vegas designed so he could do karate moves in them, um, uh, which again is like. I, I mean, it's funny because like there's a point where Elvis is like this irresistible person. And everybody loves him and he's super sexy. And then we get to Vegas and he's dressed in these really weird costumes where I'm like, this guy was like, he literally had no taste. And nobody was there to say, Elvis, you look ridiculous wearing a caped, you know, karate gi costume and standing on stage doing karate moves and sweating. And people were like, you know, it sold out and did well. So I guess everybody loved it. But uh, yeah, we, we see a lot of people in the audience screaming and shouting as we get glory, glory, hallelujah, come into its climax and the screen splits and then it splits again. And then we end up with eight different views of the same Elvis, you know, kind of shaking his quiff and uh, sweating away um, where we cut suddenly back to 1997 and we see, um, you know, a very old Colonel Tom Parker talking about how he made Elvis and how they were partners. Some of the visual things I like here is when he says they were partners, it, he walks past a sign and the word partners is on like on top of a, you know, a one-armed bandit. So it's like little words kind of appear on things as he's saying them. 
Um, and, you know, uh, Elvis was the showman and he was the snowman. And he keeps going on about snow jobs and stuff over and over again throughout the whole film. Although I don't, I don't think if you go to see someone perform and you go home happy, that is necessarily a snow job. I don't think you've conned anyone out of anything. You've just given them an actual performance that they paid money to see. But, you know, the film takes a specific thing, a kind of specific direction. Um, and, you know, we see Tom Parker throughout this film. He will be constantly slightly in the distance looking at Elvis. And there's a few times where Elvis is on screen and he's kind of in the background a little bit in the shadows. Um, you know, because Baz Luhrmann is what we call a subtle filmmaker. And so constantly <laughs> Colonel Tom Parker will be emerging from the darkness. Um, and we get we kind of jump into uh, someone performing by the name of Hank Snow. Uh, who was a you know a real uh, person um, and who lived past both Elvis's death and Tom Parker's death. I don't think he died until like 1999. Um, and he started performing like in the early 40s. So he had a long show business. I think on Wikipedia it says something like he released 150 albums. But I'm like, I, uh, I'm not sure how that's kind of possible. But I, you know, you know it was con- he released country albums. So maybe he was releasing three or four a year. Um, but we are told that we are in Texarkana in 1955. Um, you know, Colonel Tom Parker is with his various, you know, acts and they're outside in a tent and, uh, Cody Smith McPhee, previously Nightcrawler in the last couple of X-Men films, I guess. I mean, he's been in a few different things. <laughs> People might know him from different things, but that's how I remember him at the moment. Um, he is playing the, the son of Hank Snow. Hank Snow played by David Wenham who is best known, I think, for being um, Sean Bean's brother in Lord of the Rings films. Um, but yeah, notable, of course, he is uh, Australian, I think, uh, David Wenham. Um, Cody Smith-McPhee, I think, is English. Um, uh, he might not be. He might just put an accent on. Um, and there's a, lot of, there's a lot of actors in this film who are Australian because, obviously, the whole thing was shot in Australia. Um, and it's a lot easier to use local people when there's a COVID thing going on. Um but yeah, you know, we're, we're barely five minutes into the film and we start to hear That's All Right Baby, um, you know, played over the radio. And, you know, it, it it's brought to the attention of Colonel Tom Parker, who frequently without the film will say he knows nothing about music. Um, uh, that this is what people are listening to. You know, the kids love it. It's Elvis's first single. You know, it's uh, again, like it's a cover of a, a black musician's song. Um, but Elvis is the one that kind of made it famous and it will recur throughout the film in ve- in different kind of forms um, as like a kind of touch kind of touchstone. Um, and then uh, we go back to 1947. We're barely in 1955 and we have to jump back so we can see a young Elvis running around with a flash symbol uh, on his chest or Captain Marvel. Like it's the lightning bolt thing. Um Apparently, he never actually did this. This was just Baz Luhrmann wanting to kind of put something in there. But we see him attend like a, a, you know, a revival tent. And, you know, his dancing is judged to be, you know, the Holy Spirit. And so he gets lifted up. Uh, There's this weird thing where, like, the kids are at the side of the tent and they're like, oh, you can't go in. It's like, why? Like, I don't, you know, I don't understand why they wouldn't let a bunch of kids into like a, you know, a tent to listen to people talking about Jesus. Like, it just doesn't make any sense why they're holding him back. Um, but you know they lift him above his heads in a Jesus Christ pose because he's Elvis and this is the film is named Elvis so obviously you know you're gonna you're gonna start doing that um, but we you know we hear what I like is we hear that you know all all those 
you know, the different superheroes have all them superpowers, as Colonel Tom Parker tells us. And, you know, we we, we also get like some comic book frames that explain that Elvis loved comic books, which apparently he did. And we have at the end of the film, we have some stuff where he talks about he would read comic books and he would, you know, he would want to be a hero. Um, and then we jump to 1954 and we see the recording of, um, you know, That's All Right, Mama, uh, which was originally done by Big Boy Crudup. And Sam Phillips is recording it. And, and like, we're barely 10 minutes in this thing. We've jumped to three different time things. And we've had, like, a narrator tell us a lot of stuff. Um, and we kind of, like, the kind of, we arrive at the point where, basically, Colonel Tom Parker has heard of this Elvis. And Elvis is playing, you know, the Hayride. Uh, uh, which, once they get inside, it looks like there's 20,000 people in that place. Like, it looks gigantic. And I don't think the venue is really that big. Um but, you know, in true... I think it probably held, like, two <laughs> Yeah, but, like, it seems to go on forever. Um, and, uh, you know, obviously, the, the main attraction is Hank Snow, but Elvis is going to play. And um, he, you know, he, like, when he sings, he does, it, you know, as in a lot of biopics, the cliche happens where he gets a ton of feedback for, like, the entire, like, first, like, verse of this song. Um, and then, obviously, you know, that, that puts him off a little bit. And then you know he decides to kind of just be elvis and that then immediately the crowd are super into elvis and we see basically women climaxing as elvis wiggles his hips as if they've never seen anyone move their hips in a way other than just to use them for walking and they keep popping up out of their chairs as each of them uh, is overtaken with lust for elvis on stage and I, you know, I I guess like you know, Baz wants to get across straight away. Everybody loved Elvis. He was a great performer and all that kind of stuff. But it's it's just kind of weird when you just see these screaming women kind of just jumping up and screaming to the camera as you know Austin Butler starts to wiggle his hips. Um, yeah, I mean, I know that that was a thing that like women used to react that way and faint at Elvis's shows and stuff. But I think. That was probably after he was, like, the biggest superstar. You know what I mean? Like, I don't think, like... I don't think it was because his dancing really had that effect. I think it was because he was... He was such a big star at that point that people were in hysteria for him. That's so... Yeah. I don't know, Darren, if you play D&D, but <laughs> it's like um, if Elvis was a bard... And he like played. Uh, he did Bardic Inspiration, and it just like stunned the audience. I don't know. It just seemed very, very unlikely. But in a D and D setting, I'd be like, oh, okay. He he just must have rolled really high. <laughs> yeah. Well, Colonel Tom Parker is like you know that day Elvis the boy died and Elvis the, you know the superstar was born. But it's like this is like the Texarkana like hayride like at a county fair <laughs> like no, like literally nobody. Like, other than the people in that room will ever remember, like, what was happening at that particular event. Like, and, you know, he has his, like, uh, you know, his kind of pink coat, you know, taken from him. And obviously the men in the audience are, you know, calling him various slurs and stuff. Which doesn't make any sense because, like, you know, there were a lot of kind of, like, you know, the early rock and roll acts weren't, they didn't just appeal directly to women. They crossed over, like, men and women enjoyed them. So it's like, I, you know. I mean, I guess they they needed a quick way to show some hostility towards him. Um, 
Uh, but yeah, and as he dissolves into the curtain, the word Memphis comes across the screen <laughs> like a postcard. And then Beale Street kind of comes up as a different postcard. There's a lot of like gigantic transitions in this film as different titles come up. Um, and we see that, you know, Elvis, when he was living in Memphis, he wanted to spend time in Beale Street, um, getting into, as Colonel Todd Parker calls it, the Beale Street sound, which I feel is meant to be code for something. And obviously we find out that basically he just means black musicians. That's, you know, who he was hanging out with. We see B.B. King in a, in a suit shop and, you know, we see Elvis going home and all these like guys are like making fun of him. Uh, this is a guy who, by the way, has like a hit single on the radio that is being played tons of times back to back. Like, you know, he's got a measure of success uh, enough that he could move his family into this like, you know, this particular like apartment. Um, and at night, the, the like, oh, there's a funny little shot where you see these three girls standing next to a lamppost, like just in the yard, like looking up at where Elvis is. And like Elvis's mom like looks out and is like disapproving of like these girls giving Elvis attention. To be fair, I would too. That's called stalking. <laughs> yeah, but like it, like that's what comes with the fame. Like so, I you know, that, I mean, she's the one who kind of sets him up to be a performer. Um, you know, Colonel Tom Parker explains that his dad like kited a check years ago and got sent to prison, and so the family didn't have much money. And you know, so like, uh, there's a little bit of kind of backstory that's given. Um, but yeah, it, you know, the kind of relationship between Elvis and his mom was kind of very close. And I will say that in that scene where, in that scene where like he's getting ready to go out on the road, and his mom is so upset and stuff and he's saying goodbye to her i was like am i getting actors mixed up is that actually a girlfriend <laughs> so i don't know like <laughs> so at times at times it was like simmer down a little bit but yeah yeah i mean he's only going to florida you you you're in, yeah. you're in memphis well and i mean like it was a different time i know that but it was it was the way she was acting like you know like, like it was his girlfriend and he was leaving her for the road. <laughs> and it, the other thing that confused me, which I realized now was just like a dialectic thing, was she called him baby. And so I was like, oh, but now I realize that like some moms call their son baby. It's just not common they, where I'm from. They weren't calling him. Uh, she wasn't calling him baby necessarily all the time. She was calling him booby. Sometimes she called him booby, which actually was... <laughs> was a nickname that my younger brother had when he was a kid. <laughs> so I can't complain too much, but it was it was like wow. Yeah. Uh we we get we get a brief scene where Elvis is like, I need to split up with this girl. He's like talking to her, he's like, because I'm going on tour and it's gonna be difficult and whatever. Like we never even really got her name, so it's like you know, not that much of an issue. Uh he promises, you know, after he's gone on tour that he's gonna, you know, buy a pink Cadillac um and you know i like we we kind of you know like the the funny thing is like the like the the whole kind of pink cadillac thing is like so well known it feels like kind of weird that they they kind of shoehorn him saying it in it's like you know that was one of the things that he was known for for buying um but we also see that you know colonel tom parker says his mom was drinking and because she was so worried and she has like vodka that is literally just labeled vodka um uh, there's no brand on it it just says vodka on a on a clear white bottle and i was like okay it's the community theater no, it's, it's the original <laughs> yeah so, 
So she's drinking. She's drinking a lot. You know, she's taking pills. And there's there's a funny moment where it, you know he's like. Oh, you know, nothing can, you know, um, like, you know, get between us. And then all of a sudden, Colonel Tom Parker is sitting in front of like a wheel and he turns to the camera and says, want a bet? And I was just like, wait, what the? And then, you know, we kind of see the tour uh, with Hank's note. Now, what's weird is like uh, on TikTok, there was a thing that happened a couple of months ago where a band was touring and like halfway through their shows, the support act would go on. And then when the support act finished, half the audience was leaving and on tiktok people were like this is disrespectful to the headliner you know they shouldn't do that they should at least stay for the rest of the show and a point that was made was like um once like 50 to 75 percent of your audience is walking out after the headliner uh, sorry after the support act they're the headliner and you are now the support act then like if they're coming to see that band and then leaving and obviously this is something that hank snow has to face up to because we start off with like the hank the 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 bill of all the different people who are on and at the bottom it's like and elvis presley written on and then it turns out with special guest elvis presley and then eventually it turns into the elvis presley show (laughs) so over over the course of like a few months hank snow finds out that he's no longer uh the number one attraction Uh, we get a little bit of uh you know uh, underwear being thrown on stage uh, which was a thing that apparently did happen to Elvis Presley and also to his best friend Tom Jones uh, Tom Jones was notorious for women throwing underwear on stage to the point where his son became his manager and put out a notice saying please stop doing that it's weird he's my dad and he's like in his late 40s and I'm really we, we want to move on from that whole thing we want to kind of be a bit more mature about this um, there is a thing where Elvis says at this point you know it gets lonesome um and we see we have a mini montage of different girls turning up um at his hotel room and fever is sung underneath um and i was like okay uh you know obviously you know elvis is enjoying being on the road this is why he kind of broke up with his girlfriend so that he would be free to do this uh you know his mom like he's still doing his laundry so she keeps finding little things in his pockets and she's not happy about that she disapproves but what's she gonna do drink some more vodka uh vodka brand vodka um and this is where elvis uh much like dewey cox in walk hard starts to get offered different drugs and the one guy says, try one of these. It'll put more pep in your step, <laughs> which I'm like, uh, I, I, I find it funny that like, you know, people pushing drugs in the 50s were still using phrases like pep in your step um, when they were offering people what I am assuming is amphetamines. Um, and, you know, with it now being the Elvis Presley show, Colonel Tom Parker uh, for, somehow traps Elvis in a hall of mirrors. Um, he uses his carnival friends to move the mirrors so that Elvis is stuck um, and this is kind of, it's really weird because this is like the, the first kind of proper uh, dialogue scene between these two characters uh, where Colonel Tom Parker kind of comes into the Hall of Mirrors and it turns out he's not next to him. He's behind him because <laughs> he's looking in the wrong mirror and he does this whole thing about how he's lost um, and he can help him out, which he does by obviously signaling to one of the carnies to open one of the doors so they can get out. Um, and they end up on a Ferris wheel. Again, as I said, this scene did not happen. There was no Ferris wheel contract negotiation thing that he did. Um, but, you know, we get to see the kind of... Uh, we get to see Tom Hanks, you know, double Oscar winner and Austin Butler, Oscar nominee, uh, interact in a scene. And, you know, this is probably one of my favourite scenes just because of the kind of... This is where you start to see Austin Butler really kind of inhabiting the whole kind of 
Elvis thing, like doing the the accent and kind of. Apparently, he would like between like between scenes, he would still keep talking in the accent. And then there was obviously some interviews that he did after the film was out, where Elvis, uh, where Austin Butler would still talk with an Elvis like voice, um, because like he kind of got that into it. Um, but you know, I like this scene where you know Colonel Tom Parker is effectively promising in the world. He's like, you know, if you if you let me manage you, you know, we can buy some pink Cadillacs. We can buy you know two million pink Cadillacs, and they kind of have fun you know kind of uh, dreaming about how big elvis could be um and obviously colonel tom parker is salivating over the fact that this is basically going to be his meal ticket uh for the rest of his life you know this is like you know he he, he has the title of manager but he literally only ever managed one person once he took on elvis and that was elvis um so i think even though this never happened i think it's a fun scene to kind of show the first proper interaction between the two characters it was kind of fun to portray him like he handled that contract negotiation like a Batman villain. So, you know, like, like that was kind of fun. And I think it characterized him well, I guess, but. I mean, like, he, he it's funny because he then immediately like bamboozles the parents where he sets up like, you know, Elvis Presley Enterprises and he puts Vernon in charge of it um and then you know he's like he's gonna we'll call him the business manager and then you know we see the the family kind of like he he's heard earlier that they value family so he's kind of emphasizing that this is a family business and he also references the and he's got the strength of two men uh kind of trying to play into the mom's kind of inherent um i guess stress um about the that or uh, the memory of Elvis's dead twin brother. Yeah, yeah. Did, like, I mean, it's weird because like the death of Jesse is not really kind of like they only use it very briefly at the beginning, and then they don't really kind of mention it that much, you know, for the rest of the film. Um, but uh, yeah, I th- it's funny because I think Jesse's like obviously Elvis was Elvis Aaron Presley spelt just Aaron not Aaron with two A's although obviously that is what it says on his uh, tombstone um and his his brother was Jesse Baron Presley <laughs> so, so they basically like they basically <laughs> went Aaron and Baron for their middle names and they uh, you know so I just thought that was kind of a funny detail um but yeah you know he's he's a twin and his twin died and you know they have some like kind of her hearing the the announcement of a second child and the death of it like kind of off in the distance um and then you know obviously he he kind of plays to the ego of the father being like you know you'll be the business manager and you know we'll listen to whatever your mother says um and you know they agree and then we have elvis by himself recording heartbreak hotel in like this echoey building um and then you know they buy graceland um and we see that colonel tom parker is merchandising the hell out of elvis uh, one of the things that when I was younger kind of always bothered me about Elvis was the fact that like his name was on so many things and like there was so much stuff, kind of like bad merchandise that was done in his name um, and it just always made him look a bit cheap and like you know but you know this is the 50s people are excited about buying stuff that's got Elvis's name on and of course we have the masterstroke of the fact that he sells I love Elvis badges and also I hate Elvis, which is the, the the reveal of the I hate Elvis badge is done in such a funny way because it's this dramatic sting where someone says I hate Elvis and it's like who's saying that and then it's and then of course immediately like with a kind of dramatic music and then it's like oh yeah I made those badges so that we can 
profit off people hating Elvis. And I was like, yeah, I guess that makes sense. That's like a kind of, um, you know, that's kind of like a carnival trick uh, to kind of deliberately, like, if anyone's saying anything negative, you just basically use that as, you know, it's a, it's a, it's kind of like a wrestling thing. You know, if people hate you, that's that's good. You can you can use that. You know, it's only when people think you're boring and they have no emotion. That's when you're like, we've lost it. I thought the idea of buying a badge stating that you hate a particular musician was very funny. <laughs> I can't imagine ever doing that. Just like, I hate Taylor Swift. And everybody would be like, okay. But, you know. <laughs> Thank you for your honesty. <laughs> It's very brave of you. I mean, you didn't grow up in the 50s when people would only, you know, express their ideas on badges. Uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's true. That's why... That's what I yeah, do. That's why I like... I like Ike. Yeah, I like Ike, yeah. That was, that, that was huge because yeah. it was just on a, on a badge, yeah. So, a few years after this, so... Yeah, I mean, we didn't have Twitter back then, so you yeah. had to get your thoughts out via badge. Although, I would like, a, you know, I would like some kind of thing where you, you could order badges of any tweets and basically just pin them to yourself so people know what the last thing you tweeted was. that'd be an interesting uh idea i'm sure someone on etsy has done something like that because you know mm-hmm. it's etsy uh but yeah and then of course we're we're, we're you know we're on to 1956 so says the the titles that appear um and we're you know we see bb king and elvis and they're talking about an appearance on milton burl and you know he's like what are you gonna do and he's like i'm gonna sing hound dog um and you know he's like oh you know elvis presley on uncle milty and i'm like okay uh <laughs> i mean we don't actually see the performance really you know we just we kind of see bits of it on tv screens as people watch it um but this is important because it int- introduces an element that will kind of be a factor for the next kind of like 20 minutes of this film where a governor <laughs> Um, sees Elvis and is like, who's that? And his daughter, you know, practically ejaculating on the couch is like, that's <laughs> Elvis Presley. Um, and, and quietly also his son. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Everyone is, you know, erect for Elvis um, because it's the 50s. You know, now that I would wear on a badge. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, you know, we see we see this governor, uh, you know, uh, Governor Stanley wanting to kind of take advantage of the fact that Elvis is singing music that is, you know, sung by black people. And that is, you know, what that's what Elvis is capitalizing on. And so, um, you know, he starts saying that he's going to, you know, ban Elvis and he's going to protest Elvis. And um, we see Elvis go on a show and he sings Hound Dog to literally a dog. Um, and we see him complaining about this backstage and getting mad and saying, you know, if they'd have told me, I could have, um, you know, I could have made it funny. And the thing is, in real life, uh, Elvis knew about the dog and they did it as a like a, as a little bit. They did like a, a little sketch where he sang Hound Dog to a dog. Like he knew about it. He didn't get angry about it. It was it was partially his idea. Like It was something yeah, that it was adorable. Yeah, it's something that Steve Allen yeah. said to him. Do you want to do this? And they, they, he was like, yeah, sure. And they, they kind of did it. And um, yeah, there's a there's a weird thing where they kind of talk about the new Elvis, where he like wears, you know, more modest suits and doesn't shake his hips. Um and you know he goes to see bb king uh, on beale street and we see that little richard is in there singing tutti frutti um and everyone is doing what they do in these films where they seem to be randomly kind of dancing to the song and smiling and and i don't know it's just a <laughs> uh, it's a weird thing richard, I, I, what i find funny about little richard is um you know towards the end of his life 
for some reason he became very homophobic and transphobic and said that it all went against you know god's nature and all this kind of stuff and i was like okay you literally spent your entire career kind of playing up the idea of this flamboyant showman and then at the end you're like no 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 i was you know i was never gay i was super religious and all this and i'm like okay so yeah uh although you know the best thing about that richard is that it resulted in a wrestler who looked exactly like little richard and called himself johnny b bad which made absolutely no sense (laughs) because you're meant to be little richard but you know all power to you mark marrow for playing that character um so yeah you know (laughs) while he's while he's kind of talking with bb king they discuss you know like you know, people are kind of, you know, constrain him and all this. Bearing in mind, his career has literally been going for three years and he's complaining already about <laughs> they're trying to stop him from, you know, doing stuff and performing and being himself and all that kind of thing. And, um, you know, it's like, uh, OK, uh, you know, like the new Elvis basically lasts all of four minutes in this film. So it's not really a huge conflict. And it, and yeah. the, again, the governor like is not happy about Elvis performing um, and then we see this weird kind of cadre of, I don't know who they're meant to be, but like shadowy people who are like talking to Colonel Tom Parker and they're saying, control, control Elvis. Um, you know, we've looked into your background and it turns out you're not, you're not, uh, you know, American. Who would have guessed? Um, and also <laughs> you never served in the military and your name isn't Tom and you're not a Parker. And it's like, yeah, I mean, seems kind of obvious to anybody looking from the outside, but Okay. Uh, but like I don't know who these people are or why they're threatening him or what they're going to do or what's going to happen but apparently something bad's going to happen if Elvis swivels his hips Um, and you know he's annoyed that they've called him Elvis the pelvis Uh, but I'm like you're called Elvis and you move your pelvis what what else are they going to call like it's literally the first thing you think of Um, (laughs) you know like he's just upset he didn't put it on a button yeah that would have been a great button for, for people um but yeah, so, you know, we, we find out that, uh, you know, while strange things are happening is playing, you know, this kind of tension is building. There's going to be this gigantic show. We see them putting down a line in the middle of the field to segregate it, um, you know, much like in the film Hairspray and the musical Hairspray, um, where, you know, the kind of the, the, the hall is divided into two. And, you know, that's obviously, you know, that was just the reality of the time. We're in the we're in the 50s. Like this is literally before, like. The civil rights movement became big, so segregation was happening all over the place. Um, and obviously, you know, uh, Elvis is told not to even wiggle a finger. And so, you know, we know what's going to happen. Uh, <laughs> he sings, before he sings Trouble, he puts his finger in the air and starts wiggling it, uh, you know, to show that no one's going to tell him what to do. In reality, he was told, stop wiggling your hips. And for this show, he did precisely that. He just played it nice and straight and sang a bunch of songs and then went home. There was no riot. There was no thing. You know, he he conformed because uh, above all things, although Elvis was, you know, rock and roll, he was, you know, your parents rock and roll. Like, he, even though he thrilled all the, the ladies into orgasms, as seen in this film, your parents liked Elvis. He was a relatively straight, clean cut guy, you know, at this particular point in his life. And he was, you know, he wasn't super controversial, you know, like there was the whole hips thing. But like, you know, the cameras just started filming him from the waist up and that solved that problem. Like, um, but yeah, but this show is like a riot. Basically, everything falls apart. He, he, It seems like he only sings one song and then the whole thing kind of starts collapsing um, and he gets rushed off stage. And Colonel Tom Parker saying, protect the merchandise, protect the merchandise. And I was like, 
it's funny to call him that. Um, and I like Tom Hanks's reading of the word merchandise. Um, but yeah, but when they get back, the film gets very dramatic because it's like, we've got to reform your image. And, uh, you know, we've got to make you more appealing again. Uh, of course, Elvis was still at the height of his fame at this point. He was selling millions of albums. He was like literally a multi-millionaire. Like, he didn't need to do it. Like, he could literally do nothing for the next five years and he still would have been one of the richest people on the planet at this point. So, you know, it's kind of funny that they make out like all of a sudden he has to change his image. And of course, uh, this is where he goes and decides to do some military service uh, because the war ended, I don't know, 13 years before this. So he's not in any real danger. He, he, he'll just have to go over to Germany for a couple of years to, you know, look after the West Germans or whatever. Like, he's not he's not volunteering from the military in the middle of wartime like James Stewart did. James Stewart went over there and killed some Nazis. Uh, Elvis just got his hair cut and met a teenager. Um, not quite as daring. Uh, it's very brave. Yeah, he, he risked it all uh, by <laughs> meeting a 14-year-old. Um, but while he's in basic training, his mom is very worried for him because he might, I don't know, stab a straw person with a knife or something and hurt himself, um, get an allergy to the straw or something. Uh, and so she drinks herself to death and she dies. And of course, this then dramatically brings in the song Motherless Child, um, which is probably my whole my favorite song on this whole soundtrack. I do love I, 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 I will literally listen to any cover version of Motherless Child. Um, although I sent both of you a version done by Tom Jones uh, along with Portishead, Head which I personally one of my favourite versions but there's a good version on here I can't remember who's doing the version of it but there's, you know um, obviously he's lost his mom. everybody's very sad his dad's very sad his family's very sad uh, and the media need a statement so Colonel Tom Parker has to you know get Elvis out of bed and say you know go downstairs and be sad in front of the press and let them know how much you loved your mother um and uh, he does that and everyone's like oh elvis loved his mother uh jasmine sullivan that's the version yeah it's Words. a really good version yeah i sorry i've had the i already had the soundtrack list pulled up so i thought i would just check <laughs> <laughs> jasmine sullivan yeah that's a good version of motherless child uh, which itself is you could you could record your own version tomorrow because it's uh it's basically in public domain. Uh, nobody. Oh well, that's what was stopping me. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Now, well, now yeah. you know you can you can go ahead and record <laughs> your own version of Motherless Child. Um, now, of course, we then get a gigantic 1959, and Germany comes up, and so Elvis is now in Germany. He's uh, you know he's been one of the lads because he's just over there. He's just another soldier. Um, basically doing nothing because there's no war on uh like 10 years later this would be more risky 10 years earlier this would have been more risky but you know at this particular point in time he's just spending his time in germany and he happens to meet the daughter i the korean war is going on i know um but i think by this point had it finished by like 1960 i, I don't think there was any risk of being sent over to uh korea i don't know the korean war went on for i don't know 13 years according to mash um <laughs> but uh yeah <laughs> so uh he meets uh a young lady uh Priscilla Bolu who is the daughter of uh the uh colonel on the base I think um and that's why she's there because as I said she is a teenager and by teenager I don't mean 19 year old 
And yeah. I do not mean 13-year-old, but she's a 14-year-old. Um, and the film does not in any way highlight this. It just glides straight over it um, so that you don't really get your attention drawn to it. Uh, now, from... Pre- They're like, don't worry about yeah, it. Yeah, don't worry about it. Like, yeah. she was she was young, but don't worry about how young. Um, by all accounts, Priscilla Presley has said that when she was that young and she met Elvis, who, by the way, was exactly 10 years older than her, uh, literally nothing happened while they were in Germany, and it wasn't until a few years later when they were back in america that anything sexual happened between them uh, but still you know the relationship is a bit weird and creepy but yeah. out of all the out of all the rock and rollers in the 50s having sex with teenagers probably the least weird you know there's weirder than this um you know because she's not related to him for a start um <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so they glide. It's weird because, like, you know, he comes back home and they kind of glide over this very quickly. Where we get a re- we get like a big thing that says Elvis's life becomes a Hollywood movie, and that's narrated by Colonel Tom Parker as he says it. And we see then a lot a montage of different Hollywood films that Elvis was in, um, and a lot of them are either recreations or they are Austin Butler being stuck into an Elvis film for a few seconds. Um, you know, and as we know with Elvis, a terrible actor, and pretty much all of his films are unwatchable, and they are mostly garbage. And I don't think there's anyone who would disagree with that opinion because even this film says eventually Elvis was making nothing but cheap, quickly turned out garbage films. Um, I legitimately did not know he had ever been in a movie. So that's so nice. Do you think for that's you. a good sign? <laughs> You know, it's not. I when I was watching this, and then so he said that, and then he said like, he said something like, "You're gonna be the biggest movie star ever. You'll be able to choose your pictures." And I was like, "Well, I know that didn't happen." <laughs> I, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's weird because like there was a point. I mean, he had he'd start like he made his debut with a film called Love Me Tender makes sense mm-hmm. uh he did a film called jailhouse rock and he did king creole and gi blues those are generally the ones that people kind of knew as being the better ones mostly because you know they had all the soundtracks and that we do reach a point where elvis would do a soundtrack for a film and then release the soundtrack and then the film would come out and it would be used to promote the the music and that was the cycle he was stuck in but between because uh, the period depicted here is 1961 to 1964 and in that time he made 15 films in four years that's so many yeah he was that's like tom hanks levels <laughs> yeah no, he was he was literally at a rate of three films every single year and this film this makes it look like he stopped in like 1964 but he didn't he kept going all the way until 1970 and well he... i mean right Towards the end, they were talking about which I had no idea he was originally up for a Star Is Born. That is, yeah, we can get into that once that happens. Awful to imagine him uh, him acting alongside Barbara. Yeah, (laughs) there, but for the grace of God, I know. (laughs) Uh, But basically, in the space of a decade, he made nearly thirty films, and like none of them were any good. (laughs) So. but yeah, we like we see that you know we see uh, Lisa Marie appear. We see um, uh, Russell uh, Kurt Russell kicks him in the leg very quickly, um, and we get this kind of thing where you know Colonel Tom Parker is kind of like 
you know he says that the last couple of films were stinkers um you know they were box office bombs and i would struggle to tell you which two he's talking about because there were so many that basically were no good and you know it, it kind of became a joke like the, the elvis was such a bad actor and kept making so many films like it was just a it was like a thing that people would, would make fun of him for um and it's it's weird because like it's a little bit why he had to do the comeback special but even after the comeback special he still made like another three films <laughs> so you know he didn't really capitalize on that in the way that you would expect um but yeah so you know we get the impression that his film career was doing really well he had a baby uh, baby lisa marie presley who as we record recently died um so priscilla is still alive um she's quite i mean she had some work done let's say and she looks yeah. the same as she did in like 19 i don't know 1988 um she obviously became more well known in the the 80s and the 90s for being in the naked gun films uh with leslie nielsen um but uh yeah which apparently elvis would not have approved of her like acting in films <laughs> like he was very controlling in terms of her life um so yeah but then we get the like this film then takes a turn and we enter into the weird dramatic thing where elvis keeps seeing people being killed they skip over jfk uh but they emphasize that martin luther king has been killed and colonel tom parker correctly says this has nothing to do with us uh it's almost as if he's looking at baz Luhrmann and saying why is this in the film <laughs> like <laughs> Well, again, I think this was part of them trying to portray Elvis as like, uh, as like a real champion of racial justice, which I, I just I don't think he was. So I'm confused as to why they decided to create that aspect of his character. I mean, it it feeds into a little bit of when he sings "If I Can Dream." Um, yeah, but like you know, we're like, why? like in the trailer it's funny because it made it look like uh he killed martin luther king jr like the way they cut the trailer it was like <laughs> colonel tom parker was i forgot about colonel that. tom parker was saying it's not our fault we didn't do it like it was it was like a... i would have loved if that was the hard left turn the movie took is <laughs> them having to cover up their assassination <laughs> Oh, man. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, Elvis did did end up getting, like, an FBI badge off uh, Richard Nixon when he met him. So, you know, like, it's not beyond the realm that, you know, as I get, as I said, you know, to emphasize the fact that Elvis was an old man. But, like, in the 60s, you know, the Beatles and stuff like that, they would talk about how much they loved Elvis. Uh, in reality, the Beatles really loved Buddy Holly. But, you know, they'd talk about Elvis and, you know, they'd talk about Bob Dylan and, you know, like, there, there was American influences that they would talk about. But the bit like nothing the Beatles did was ever anything like Elvis's stuff. Like aside from you know some of the early stuff where they did covers and stuff, but like you know their influence was completely different. Like so it's you know it's puzzling that because Elvis was literally probably the the person that their moms liked. You know they were a lot younger than Elvis, and so like it's it's just really weird that like Elvis is suddenly being shown as like this radical kind of like left wing do gooder when in reality he was you know a lot more conservative. Um, but yeah, so Martin Luther King has been killed, and so uh, Colonel Tom Parker, in probably, I don't know, maybe my second favourite thing in the entire film, uh, sings Here Comes Santa Claus with a little diorama that he's made of, <laughs> of the reindeer flying, and he's he's got it set up so the reindeer fly off and then they come back on, but obviously it's two different reindeer, but he's just moving these little sticks above this diorama, so it's like kind of very elaborate just to try and sell the idea to Elvis, and I, I just... 
you know, and Tom Hanks really gets into it. That's what I love about it. Like, Tom Hanks is, like, very much, like, playing the person who liked Christmas. Uh, after he, of course, murdered Christmas with the release of... Um, what was what's that film that I've watched that Polar I hated? Express. Polar Express. Polar Express, yeah. yeah. So, Tom Hanks has yeah. murdered Christmas. He's trying to make up for it now in this Elvis film. Um, but, yeah, so, and, like, he's trying to sell him on a Christmas special, and Elvis is like... Uh, I don't want to do a Christmas special, <laughs> you know. Yeah, he's like, uh, you know, Martin Luther King just died, man. And he's like, so he doesn't, like, he doesn't want to do that because Martin Luther. I don't, it's a really that's my only Elvis impression I'm going to do in this entire uh, episode. Um, of course, Kelly's the the expert on on impressions and accents. I, did, I recorded so. my impression for Leandra of of Tom Hanks in this movie. Okay. Because. <laughs> I mean, I don't have to do it right now, but I was—I just can't. The the accent is just. I think because you know, other listeners of this podcast will know that I did not care for Tom Hanks's performance in Cloud Atlas or in Polar Express. I think maybe I just don't think he can do accents or voices. No, he's fine. There's been a movie where he did an accent that was great. Not re- I mean, like thinking back, like he's good doing. He's good being Tom Hanks, and uh-huh. when he's being Tom Hanks, he can tell you that his character comes from, you know, Seattle or comes from New York or whatever. And you're just like, well, he just sounds like Tom Hanks. You know, like in the Money Pit, he's meant to be from like Jersey or something, but he doesn't sound like he's from Jersey. He just sounds like Tom Hanks. So I don't, I don't think he has ever really done like a convincing accent and you say like the in, in cloud atlas he like really goes into like the whole different accents for each part so it's like mm-hmm. but it's only when he just does himself that he's actually doing that he's actually doing a good performance in that film all the other times when he's trying yeah. to do accents well because i was thinking and i think every movie where i've really disliked his performance he was trying to do an accent or like Polar Express wasn't an accent per se, but it kind of was. He, he was doing a weird voice. Yeah, he's well for each of the different characters. He was put, deliberately putting well, on different that's voices. True. Yeah, to try. But and like just... his main character of the conductor, he's like, ah, you know. Yeah, you know. although it's weird because actually in that film, his main character is the little boy, because uh, he's doing that voice. I as forgot well. he played the little boy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's so, so weird. Maybe he convinced well, you then. Maybe he convinced you with that one voice that he's a little seamlessly. boy. Yeah. yeah, you know, now that I think about it, the little boy was really the crown jewel of that movie. But... Yeah, he got you. And as they... If there was a jewel. As they say in Cloud Atlas, that's the true true. Um, and... Mm-hmm. No. <laughs> no, 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 no. And so we have this weird meeting by the Hollywood sign, which, of course, at the time was falling apart. And so keeping in mind, all of this was shot in Australia. So this is like some hill in Australia where they put like a sign up that's, you know, meant to be the Hollywood sign in the in the kind of the, the late 60s as it was falling apart. And uh, fun fact, Alice Cooper bought one of the letters and restored it. Uh, I think he bought one of the, the O's. Um, and so Elvis is just casually sitting in like the D of the Hollywood sign. <laughs> and these guys come down and uh, one of them is a director who's, of TV stuff called uh, Steve Binder. And, you know, they've all got big sideburns at this point and they've all got a lot of hair. And, you know, Elvis is like, what's going on with my career? What do you think? And they're like, well, it's in the toilet. You know, like you're washed up. You know, you're a has-been. And Elvis is like, okay, you know, like you're being honest to me. So why don't you produce this Christmas special? And they're like, we don't do Christmas specials. And of course, because 
you know, this is the film. You know they are going to do this Christmas special. Uh, disappointingly, we didn't follow them until one year after Elvis's death when they did the Star Wars Christmas special because uh, it was the same guy. <clears throat> oh, that is just just disappointing. Yeah, yeah. That could have been a nice little coda, like an after credits thing. Uh, so, uh, but yeah. So instead, they leaned in with Star Trek instead. So. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I know. Disappointing. Um, but yeah, so, you know, they're, they're like, we're not going to do it and we're not going to have people singing, you know, here comes Santa Claus or whatever. And uh, so they're like, look, here's what we think. Why don't you go back to, you know, back to basics, you know, strip it all down. Let's let's do like, uh, you know, MTV unplugged. But before MT exi- MTV existed and let's just have you singing songs with your old band and, you know, let's just make it intimate. Uh, and so that's what they do. And obviously, you know, everyone knows what the, <laughs> the Elvis comeback special, which is not called that. It's just called. Uh, singer presents dot 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 elvis um because everything associated with elvis has just got to be called elvis uh that was one of his keys of you know succeeding uh and so uh he it, they decide on a different look he's going to wear a leather jacket because he's a rebel uh, he even points at the the griffin of, of, of observatory and says that's where they filmed rebel without a cause giving everyone the idea that why doesn't he wear a leather jacket um and no doubt some tight leather pants um and you know they kind of refuse to put any christmas songs in there i think in the actual special there is like one christmas song uh which i think is like christmas blues uh but they mostly refuse to do any of the songs that colonel tom parker or the sponsors or the network wanted (laughs) they basically just did whatever elvis wanted to do which feels like a lot of this film um but yeah, so, you know, we detour for about 20 minutes into the, 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 the special. Uh, we have, like, the, these dancers that come out. And then we have the kung fu guys come out <laughs> and start doing kung fu. And I'm like, what the hell is going on? Like, what is going on? Um, and, but then in the middle of all that, Bobby Kennedy is shot. And, uh, you know, uh, once again, Elvis is distraught by the fact that people are being killed. Uh, even though, of course, his own politics would have meant that he would have voted for Richard Nixon and not Bobby Kennedy if Bobby Kennedy had actually managed to get into the 1968 election. Um, and obviously the, the 1968 comeback special actually aired after the election. So, you know, they're shooting this as Bobby Kennedy is killed. Uh, it would be, it would have been funny if, like, you know, Colonel Tom Parker ran in with a gun and quickly handed it to Elvis and said, get rid of this. Um <laughs> You know, and said, I, you know, I didn't do it. If anyone asks. We're writing a more compelling movie right now. Yeah. If anyone asks, is this guy I met. Baz, when you're listening. Is <laughs> this guy I met called Sirhan Sirhan. Tell everybody that. They'll believe it. Um, yeah. But Elvis wants to make a statement about what's going on in America today. Um, and he's going to do this on a Christmas comeback special. That's going to be his platform. Um, and, you know, he's he's kind of mournfully singing Here Comes Santa Claus whilst playing it slowly on the piano uh, by himself while the director is in the booth. And he's like, you know, we we can do this tomorrow if you want. You know, we're ready for it. And, uh, you know, Elvis repeats what a pastor said earlier in the film. And he says, when things are too dangerous to say, sing. Um, and so he sings a song which he writes overnight called If I Can Dream. Uh, which is a it is a real song this is what he really did he put on a white suit he had his own name in gigantic lights behind him saying elvis and you know he sang uh this song it went into the charts it was quite successful you know the special was watched by millions of people um, and he did instead of finishing it by saying like merry christmas he did just finish it by saying good night and obviously colonel tom parker is angry that this was a success doesn't really make any sense narratively but okay um but uh, and I did love this performance like this. 
if you watch the original performance as i said i'm not a fan of elvis but if you watch the original performance of this song it is like a really good performance and it is quite moving and you're like you know this i mean uh, what you got to remember is like elvis is like barely like 29 <laughs> like or no he's like he's he's about to turn 30 i think or you know he's kind of early 30s like he's li- he's still kind of a fairly young guy just kind of you know confused by the world but this song is very you know very powerful like just the, the kind of performance of it and uh yeah like kind of the message i don't think it really kind of stopped like you know racism in america as elvis hoped no that what racism's been over since then yeah since 1968 yeah. that was yeah. the end of racism yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah baz let us know yeah with this film yeah. and oh well you, you as yeah. he finishes the performance we get a load of magazine magazines some of which exist some of which don't and for some reason der spiegel is in there in the corner and i'm like why would der spiegel cover an american tv special i guess maybe for the troops who were still over there uh with you know the divided germany or whatever uh but yeah uh one of them does say racism ended today so yeah you're correct i I didn't spot that first time but now now i'm looking at the screenshots i see that yeah it's the cover of newsweek it says racism has finished thank you elvis um (laughs) but yeah so you know we then after after that little diversion uh we see that colonel tom parker is nervous because elvis is now famous i think is that what we meant to understand from this he's been famous for like 15 years yeah we're unhappy yeah but he's been so famous yeah and the, again he got famous and washed up like yeah they said what they said the words washed up so yeah yeah so they don't show us with him like making another three films in 1968 and another three in 1969 they just pretend he didn't do any of that and you know his buddies are all talking about like let's go on tour you know you bought a plane uh you're calling it the lisa marie um and so let's let's tour the world you know let's go to japan let's go to wherever like everybody wants you to go and tour so let's do that uh, and ap- apparently at this time the london palladium were like hey you know for like i think it was something like twenty thousand pounds they were like can elvis come over and play like a series of concerts and apparently colonel tom parker said yeah twenty thousand pounds that's a good price uh now what are you going to pay elvis um so <laughs> obviously he kind of tried to extort them for more money and they were like oh we'll forget it then so you know obviously colonel tom parker is nervous about elvis um you know uh, traveling around the world or whatever uh because he hasn't got a passport he's basically not a citizen of anything uh because he effectively renounced his dutch citizenship when he joined the u.s army and because he's not a u.s citizen he's also not a dutch citizen he basically has no status um so yeah it's going to make it difficult to travel so he keeps encouraging elvis to not tour by talking about security and death threats apparently death threats were real elvis did get a lot of death threats and stuff uh, you know as many famous people do and so that is the thing that he kind of talks up but before that happens he has a heart attack i don't know if he i mean the weird thing about this film is like i don't know if he actually had a heart attack or if he's just in hospital pretending he had a heart attack so he can kind of manipulate elvis like you know I mean, it looks real enough, but I'm like, at this point, I don't trust Colonel Tom Parker about anything, so I'm not sure that he's actually had a heart attack. Um, you know, but Tom sells it, and he's like, I had a heart attack, and El- and Elvis is like, I'm going to fire you. And he's like, okay, that's fine, you know. Uh, maybe we should go somewhere else. Um, and he makes this deal, um, and he says to Elvis, he says, yeah, what if you could tour, but it costs you nothing? 
And Elvis is like, I'm listening. And uh, he's like, how about you stay in this one hotel? He like he dramatically opens his hospital window and says, how about you stay, you stay in that one brand new hotel that's been built and have a residency there? Which is why I, I don't know if this, he was faking the heart attack, but it's suspiciously perfect for him to open up the curtains and look across and go, there's where we want you to you know, have your name up in lights. It's, oh, my heart. I, I need to be admitted. Um west facing <laughs> is what i want the one i need the window to be for my heart <laughs> yeah uh we get a lot of like uh swoops into the the lights outside the hotel and the kind of you know signs going up and all that kind of stuff uh, and we find out you know like uh elvis has got an idea about what he's going to do in this gigantic new venue uh thus starts i don't know the fourth act of this film you know like the like whatever was just going on doesn't matter anymore who cares about the the comeback special we're in vegas now and so he's going to do like a residency there and uh he he's got this idea for how he's going to do that's all right mama but instead of being like just elvis and you know a few guys it's going to be two gospel choirs a 30-piece orchestra and his full band and he then goes around kind of saying the different you know kind of vocalizing the different parts that he wants people to play um and what he ends up coming up with sounds very nice but again it is literally the corniest like horn arrangement and like the cheesiest like version of this song done by like a big band and it's like buddy this sounds like something that like you know would be played during the 30s like it's you're not this isn't forward looking this is like you know this is literally this is what everybody who ends up with a vegas residency ends up turning into um although not adele because she's got like a magic trick where she disappears at the end of each night um in a puff of confetti um so uh yeah so yeah that's how she finishes she literally sings i can't remember what the song is but she sings it and then all this confetti kind of rains down and when it settles she's disappeared um God, that's yeah. great. Um, yeah, that's awesome. But uh, that's not what Elvis is going to do. He's going to put on suits that look like karate clothes and he's going to dance around with his sweaty forehead and his big greasy hair and keep doing karate moves while he sings uh, Suspicious Minds. And of course, because Baz Luhrmann is a subtle fella, as they start writing out the contract, Elvis sings the words, I'm caught in a trap. And, <laughs> and literally, <laughs> Colonel Tom Parker is like five years, a million dollar a year. And then he says to the the guys, what are you going to pay me? And they pay him basically an unlimited line of credit at the um, at the, the casino that's underneath this hotel. Um, and it's just funny. How he keeps singing Suspicious Minds. And obviously all of it, it kind of relates to this contract that's been um, put together. But as you say, Suspicious Minds, this is a good song and this is a nice performance of it. And I should say it's at this point that they start to blend Austin Butler's voice with Elvis's voice. Um, on the soundtrack um, or the younger, when he was younger Elvis he was singing most of that himself but I was going to ask yes. is that a thing an unlimited line of credit is that a real thing that you can get in a contract because that seems insane I mean if you're a gambling addict and you've got Elvis Presley as your you know only client collateral yeah then yeah. I think I think you can. I mean, I guess it would be unlimited to the point where like I'm there's only so many so much gambling he can do before. I mean, if because the thing is if he wins, then he doesn't need the line of credit, does he? Because he's got the winnings. So, he can cash out and he can play with that. Um, but the the line of credit well, just means so he, like, he can't get in debt basically. Like if he keeps losing, it's on the it's on the house. But so why wouldn't he just like 
bet huge repeatedly and then eventually win. Well, I think there's limits, isn't there? The games have limits. Well, apparently, if there's limits, it's not unlimited. That's why I was confused. The games have limits, but he has he has an unlimited line of credit. So he could literally, you know, he could play like, you know, $5 poker all day long. But if he loses, he doesn't have to pay any of it back. But if he wins, he can keep the winning. But he can't go and be like 10000 on no. this poker game. Okay. No, they wouldn't. They wouldn't so it would still. It was, I'm, I'm not understanding, I guess, what an unlimited line of credit is. But it's still a very. It just means deal. if he wanted to, if <laughs> yeah. he wanted to play like 100 games of poker a day, $5 a pop, mm. then he could. And if he lost, it doesn't matter. He doesn't have to pay any of it back. And if he wins, he gets to keep the winnings. But he couldn't just keep like walking in and playing like putting half a million down on each hand. Like that's why I was confused. Yeah. I was like, that doesn't make any sense. The unlimited um, just means okay. he can never he can never get into debt. And they paid off his debts yeah. as well that he already had, which I think at the time was like eighty grand or something like that with one. So mm. they paid off his debt, and then basically he couldn't get himself into debt again as long as Elvis was performing. Obviously, that was the you know. That was the the thing. Like as soon as Elvis stopped performing, then obviously he, they would withdraw the credit. Um, but yeah, so you know, Elvis doesn't realize that he's going to be doing this for the next five years. Um, uh, he just thinks that it's going to be a couple of months this year, and then you know they'll renegotiate. Uh, but it does include a penthouse apartment, uh, you know, in the same hotel, which of course is true. You know that's what happened. Um, and as we say, there, like there are a few things where it looks like Colonel Tom Parker has staged it so that people jump up on the stage and try to attack Elvis. Uh, we see Elvis putting a gun into his uh, into a holster that he'd have on stage, and that was true. He did have a, a little gun uh, on his ankle just in case. <laughs> so, um, And, uh, you know, this is where we also see uh, the thing with the Rolling Stones. Well, what the, I can't even remember what the name of the place was uh, where that happened. Uh, where they had like all the people they had they decided to have hell's angels as bouncers and security for this event and that of course led to people being killed uh you know things are basically turning sour you know for the hippies and uh you know we're at the end of 1969 um and you know generally seen as a bad thing uh, always reminds me of my favorite joke from the simpsons where homer tries to find out what his middle name means and it turns out that homer j simpson just means homer j simpson and uh, the hippies that he meets, um, uh, they say, you know, like they're not hippies anymore because they sold their van. And they say the 60s ended the day we sold that van, the 31st of December, 1969. Um, and that is <laughs> just a great Simpsons gag. <laughs> um, and so the 60s have ended. Things are bad. Um, and, you know, we see in this room where Elvis is admitted for, you know, his various ailments, uh, which mostly include being addicted to drugs. Uh uh, the the windows are foiled out so that nobody can see in. Um, and we, Colonel Tom Parker you know, dramatically announces that he'll have more security than the president. Uh, funny because 1970s when Elvis went and met Richard Nixon, the president at the time. Um, and he says that they're, you know, taking care of a business. Um, but they decide that in between playing Vegas at the start of the year and Vegas at the end of the year, they'll go on a, a tour. But it will only be within the United States, the safe United States where during the 70s there was no dangers to anybody and everything was fine mm -hmm. because racism had been over for two years. So, you know, yeah. everything was okay. Thanks uh, to Elvis. Yeah, yeah. And this is where we get to hear... I mean, it's weird that it's taken us nearly two hours into this film, but we get to hear the phrase, Elvis has left the building, um, <laughs> which they would announce after the final song because people would stay there waiting for encores and eventually somebody was like, you're just going to have to tell them, 
he's he's literally gone home <laughs> like as soon as he's off the stage he's done and uh, and so yeah so they started announcing elvis has left the building um, a phrase that would also be used for when he died people would say elvis has left the building that was one of the headlines that people used for his death uh, you know because obviously that was the well-known catchphrase uh yeah so you know we get a little montage of you know the different years that he's at vegas we have hunk hunk burning love playing underneath but in a kind of dramatic falling apart everything's going wrong <laughs> fashion um you know kind of looped over itself uh we see the fourth great year which obviously is when you know kind of what we saw at the start of the film as well uh we find out in 1973 he had turned to dem pills uh as tom hanks says in a dutch accent um and we see he is so delirious from dem pills that he shoots the tv uh we also hear kind of floating past that sharon tate has been killed uh which you know the irony being of course that austin butler was previously in uh, once upon a time in hollywood where he played somebody who tried to kill sharon tate um uh, we see him wearing a red and black karate gi in his hotel room <laughs> uh, because obviously in the in the early 70s you know karate casual was the height of fashion and you know i gotta admit when i was younger i did used to do karate and uh karate gi is very comfortable to wear um you know it's it's made yes. for movement uh you know so you can do kicks and punches and stuff and it also it's also quite warm because you know the material is a little bit thick and you know so i can understand why elvis would be like i love these that's what i'm wearing from now on um and also uh with some uh you know i can't remember the name of the guy but there's like a guy who he did all these touring outfits who basically designed stuff around the fact that elvis was like i like wearing karate geese and so we see his his Las Vegas uniform turn into the kind of like the jumpsuit style karate geese that he would wear with the capes under the arms. And, the, and at this point, you're like, you know, when he was wearing the leather jacket like five years ago and he had his hair kind of like done in the style of like a greaser, he looked relatively cool. But now he just looks like a complete dork uh, running around in these kind of increasingly bejeweled outfits. And I'm like, what is what is going on? What is happening here? I I just like the whole thing is just falling apart. Um, and, you know, as he is singing different songs, we start to see like a, a kind of a little bit of, you know, the kind of um, flashbacks to previous years. Um, we see different people singing some of the songs that he's covering. You know, we get kind of a montage of that. We find out that, you know, Priscilla is leaving him and he keeps saying, you know, just stay with me. And she's like, no uh you know you're like blasted out your brain and i can you know barely you can barely keep you standing upright to perform i don't want to be around this i'm I'm taking the kid i'm going um and you know this is when we kind of come back around to the intro where we see that elvis has kind of collapsed and you know uh, colonel parker is like you know we need to get that boy back on stage and so the doctor just like injects him with drugs and he just like you know leaps up and goes on stage and performs um and uh this is where he makes a choice to fire the colonel live on stage again did not happen his his vegas residences were fairly calm apart from you know the fact that he did start to gain weight from all the kind of you know the eating he would do afterwards and uh you know he barely i mean they actually say in voiceover like he, he barely leaves his hotel room and that was true at the time like he literally would perform on stage and then go straight back to his hotel room and stay there for days on end when he wasn't performing um you know when he wasn't touring he would literally go and stay in his his penthouse uh, or he'd go to graceland for like a, a couple of months and just never leave um uh, notorious like the weird thing about this film is at never no point does he ever eat his signature sandwich which was uh you know 
just uh, yeah, exactly. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. So if you're going to show Elvis going off the rails and you know, kind of starting to put on weight and become less healthy, although he does say to Priscilla he's in the best shape of his life, and she's like, no, I don't think that's correct. <laughs> um, <laughs> No. no, I mean that's no, accurate to what somebody who's in that stage of their life would say. Yeah. But yeah, I mean he was doing a lot of karate, so how could he not be in the uh. best shape of his life? Uh, yeah, but yeah, for somebody who's falling off the rails, we never see him uh, make his uh, his signature sandwich. Nor do we see him go because he used to literally get in a jet and fly. To, I can't remember where he used to fly to, but there was a place where he used to fly to just to get that specific sandwich made for him. Um, and so he, you know, he doesn't do that. Uh, disappointing, Baz. You disappointed me. Maybe it's in the four-hour cut. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's like that's the kind of fun little detail that I can't believe they omitted. I don't really care about like the realism necessarily. Like, I will tell listeners like if you want to learn about Elvis's life, this is not the movie, <laughs> probably. But like, but I don't understand why you would pass up like fun things, you know? Yeah. You know, at least show yeah. us making the sandwich. Like he, like it's not just he would yeah. go and fly to this one place and get. He would literally make them for his, you know, his his friends and family. Like he was, that was like his thing that he would do. Um, yeah. But yeah, so you know, and I should also say, like, there's a there's a whole bit in here about like the the Memphis Mafia, like taking all his money and all that kind of stuff. And you know, this is this is one of the reasons why after he like you know he f- fires the colonel. Uh, you know, the colonel makes a list of expenses that comes to eight and a half million dollars. Uh, and this is the thing about Elvis. He was known for being ridiculously generous. Like he had so many people that he was, you know, that would work for him, but just in inverted commas. Like he would literally just give them gifts all the time. And he would even do this to like random people he met on the street. He would like, you know, he would meet someone on the street. They'd be a fan and he'd literally like go into a shop and buy them stuff. And, you know, he was just like a very generous kind of like soul. And, uh, you know, that's kind of like it's kind of sad how that was taken advantage of by, you know, a lot of people. But at the same time, you know, if he want, you know, he had so much money, if he wanted to spend it on, you know, like buying his mom a pink Cadillac, you know, that was the thing he did. Then, you know, that, that was that was, you know, that's what he should do. Uh, this is, of course, where we get the greatest line that has ever been written in the entire of cinema history as Elvis has fired the colonel. The colonel has basically put an ultimatum down of like, you owe me $8 million. If you really want to break up with me, you can do. But, you know, bitch better have my money. And so (laughs) he goes like we see that we see the colonel sitting like in the parking garage, like in the shadows. And he emerges and he says to Elvis that they're the same. We are two odd, lonely children reaching for eternity. Everybody who saw that line in the trailer was like, what (laughs) and the film does not give it any extra context (laughs) it's just literally that line and you're like i what what are you talking about two odd lonely children elvis literally has like 50 people hanging around him at all times like he's like like he's super popular in the context of that scene it's like they're having like a like a vicious argument where because like the colonel's basically holding him hostage with money. Like, if somebody then said that to me, I would punch them in the face, even if I was not drug-addled. I don't understand. Yeah. It's like, okay. Uh, He reluctantly returns, though, to the management of Colonel Tom Parker, and we see that he does his fifth year, as was originally guaranteed in the contract. He also did, like, a concert from Hawaii, 
you know, where which was broadcast all around the world. One of the first events that was broadcast like by satellite live to a number of countries. Um, and we hear about, you know, the possibility of him making A Star Is Born. Now, what happened with that, and they don't go into it in the film, but it's worth saying here, um, is... They were they were saying we will pay Elvis like one million dollars to be in this film. The producers wanted Elvis. Uh, they wanted him to play a washed up music star. <laughs> so wasn't going to be much of a stretch. Um, although after his comeback thing, he was actually riding a little bit higher. So, you know, but still they were like, you know, and Elvis had seen the script and he'd read it and he said, yes, I want to do this. And so Colonel Tom Parker stepped in and said, how about instead of a million dollars? You just pay him a hundred thousand, but you give him ten percent of all the profits the film will eventually make, and also you have to pay me twenty thousand dollars like up front, and then I also get like ten percent of the box office. And he started like adding a bunch of stuff, and eventually, you know, the negotiations got to the point where the film producers were like, uh, "Nah, we're not going to talk to you anymore." So they just stopped communicating with Elvis. But apparently, if Elvis had called them. They would have said yes to him, but they, you know, Elvis was never told about the deal. And so, you know, he ended up not being in it. And then they contacted Chris Christopherson and they were like, what Barbara really needs is a guy who's got the same name twice. So can you possibly do this film? <laughs> and of course, history was made. But yeah, so people also have said that if Elvis had started doing that film, he probably would have, for insurance purposes, he would have had to stop doing all the drugs and he probably would have had to lose a bit of weight and he would have had to get back in shape and he would have had to like kind of train his voice a bit and it would have basically saved his life is what some people feel uh in terms of you know him not getting the film but you know people yeah because i'm sure it would have been so easy for him to just stop doing the drugs well i mean that, i mean betty ford existed at that point so you know they could have they could have put him into rehab for a couple of months and they probably could have they they probably could have got him clean for the film let's put it like that whether or not he stayed off him for the rest of his life would have been a whole different thing um but yeah so with, uh, with that in the review mirror we see the jet land and uh lisa marie is passed back to priscilla and they have a brief conversation and she's kind of like you know what's going on with you and he's like you know i'm doing great you know i'm singing i like my life <laughs> you know uh, apparently at this point like it was he was basically having trouble even staying standing up for most gigs so they were like under an hour and he would be mostly on speed to stay awake through them um and but the thing is even when he postponed gigs he would still commit to them and he would still end up doing those gigs so he never missed a gig he just looked terrible whilst he was doing it uh, something which Baz Luhrmann is about to remind us about in a little bit. Uh, and we find out uh, through montage that Elvis Presley has died. Uh, 16th of August, 1977. Elvis is dead. One might say he has left the building. Um, and so, <laughs> you know. More than one. Yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, we see, you know, kind of like, uh, you know, Tom Parker is like, did I kill him? Nah, I didn't. <laughs> um, and, you know, we kind of also see Tom Parker die in the present of the film, which was 1987, of course, the time of Star Trek The Experience in Las Vegas. If anybody was around in Las Vegas in 97, I'm sure they remember. Um, and, you know, basically, you know, that's that's kind of the end, apart from the fact that uh, we see what basically his final performance 
where he sings Unchained Melody. And we start off with um, Austin Butler singing it. And then we switch to a shot of the crowd and then we come back and it's the real Elvis singing it. And if anyone has seen it, you will know that it is literally heartbreaking to watch somebody who's 42 looking like that. And he's still like his voice is still really good and he's still like able to perform. But he's you can tell he's barely like able to perform like he's literally struggling to sit at the piano and you know the mic is having to be held next to him so he can actually kind of sing properly um and you know that is that is how the film ends um and it's fun one of the few things in this movie that i really liked and thought was effective was the use of actual footage uh sparingly but at important moments so yeah, I agree. That was a very moving scene. I would, I do want to mention that Tom Hanks's little monologue about Elvis's death was some of the worst dialogue in the movie <laughs> for me, and not just because it was being he was he literally says like, "Some say it was me that killed Elvis. Some say it was the drugs, but this is not true." And I was like, "Well, it, I mean, it was the." And then he says it was love, and I was like, I, I really wanted to no, be like, his love of drugs. Love. Yeah, but, yeah. but it, he says it was love, his love of his fans, and I was like, what? No. <laughs> <laughs> no. That doesn't even make sense. Like, he didn't die of a broken heart because his fans had abandoned him, or whatever you're saying. Like, everybody was, you know, like you said, his star was kind of on the rise again at the... I, it's I, it's it's really it's really weird because like yeah like he's trying to give excuses but it's like buddy the guy was found with twenty seven different drugs in his system and he had like barbiturates cocaine like he had he had yeah. like uppers and downers at the same time like the like he the guy the guy was like on the toilet apparently uh, constipated for yeah. nearly like a month uh, like oh my yeah, god yeah. like and I mean I I know Tom Hanks is kind of an unreliable narrator in this movie but I think I think the movie was trying to make that point at the end and I was like I was like no it 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 wasn't his love of his fans that drove him to this point like it was the kind of just the general trajectory of a young musician that gets kind of you know swept up in show business and yeah, I mean it's so. I really hated that. I, I hated that <laughs> line. That's all. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like uh, you know, the the fact that it like because the, the that little monologue comes before we actually see the performance of of mm-hmm. like Elvis, and so it's like yeah, they at least finish with Elvis actually performing. I should say as well that you know uh, Priscilla, L- Lisa Marie, and Riley Keough, who obviously is Lisa Marie's daughter, they all like approved of this film like they all saw the film and they were like it's a good film we like the film like it's a good portrayal of elvis you know like you know this, so they all gave their approval um but yeah like it's just so it's such a weird thing like i know the thing is like the worst thing in the world is inconsistent narrators like people who start off narrating a film and then by the end we never hear from them again and you're like why did you start narrating the film and then just give up halfway <laughs> through so at least this film is consistent in that the narrator keeps coming back and he keeps trying yeah. to excuse stuff. But then what's on screen is clearly Colonel Tom Parker exploiting and almost killing Elvis. And then he says in monologue, I didn't kill Elvis. And I think you are meant to think, buddy, you're lying to yourself. Like, 
You definitely, yeah. you definitely did kill Elvis. It's also worth saying that Colonel Tom Parker was like married and had three kids, and he had like two kids that his wife had from a previous marriage. And when he died, he died with his family surrounding him in a hospital. He didn't just like collapse on the like on the floor in like a casino. <laughs> like he's like they make it out like he spent yeah. twenty years wandering around the casinos of Vegas by himself, but he didn't. He had like a whole family. He obviously spent yeah. a, a long time being sued by the estate. And the, the, like the irony is, the film seems but to make not out... to much effect, as I understand it. Yeah, well, this is it. The film seems to make out that like, oh yeah, they sued Tom Parker, and then Tom Parker had nothing to do with Elvis. But it's like, yeah, he sued them, and in court, he was like, I'm entitled to like seventy five percent of what you've currently got, and then we'll call it a day. And and the estate had to like the judge was like, yeah, he's entitled to the money. Give him the money. So the estate had to basically pay like almost like two thirds or something of, of the entire of the, of the Elvis fortune in like the early eighties to him so that they could sever the contract. Yeah. So he made out like a bandit from this thing. Like, yeah. And maybe they didn't want to make this sad point, but I think it would have been, um, I think it would have been a powerful contrast to show that he went on to have a fulfilling relatively long life whereas Elvis just died a victim of his you know alone and miserable yeah well yeah I mean I guess yeah it'd be weird to be like a Colonel Tom Parker had a family and a wife and lived happily <laughs> like instead they're like you know he wandered around the casinos of Vegas like losing all his money and dying yeah. uh, and you're like well that's not completely accurate but okay you know let's make out like elvis won here because they're like an elvis is the best-selling ever you know solo artist in all mm. time and and you're like yeah that's great but the guy's been he's been dead longer than he was alive like he's been dead 45 years he was only alive for 42 of them if he's still alive today elvis would be 87 the, the victory is you know is not really that that you know like <laughs> you know yeah um, but then at the same time you know they don't have him meet him president nixon and being like a right wing like nut job so like there are other things that they kind of play down in in this film and they don't really kind of concentrate on so but uh yeah i mean they also miss out the fact that there's a number of other women that he had like relationships with one of whom ended up marrying one of his friends <laughs> which is kind of uh, weird uh but yeah so um uh, yeah that's the end of the film uh, r.i.p elvis uh i guess you had fun and then we then died. I mean, like it's it's Did weird he? because like I guess this film wants to tell the story of Elvis, but it it skips over so many little bits and it kind of focuses on so many other things that didn't actually happen. And I'm like, it it just feels like most biopics. It feels like a bit of a distortion of what the actual story was. Uh, although I mean, this is something interesting that uh, you know it's kind of more about the behind the scenes stuff. But apparently, the first person who started writing the script for this was actually uh, Kelly Marcel, which is someone who I've commented on before because she wrote the script for saving mr banks um and when she wrote saving mr banks she wrote it without the approval of disney or the walt disney company or any other family members and she just wrote it on a whim hoping that one day it might get made and obviously there's only one studio that could make it um but then she also uh wrote the script for 50 shades of gray um and then venom and then cruella and then venom 2 and she's making her directing debut for Ven with, with Venom 3. She's writing and directing Venom 3. So it's good to see women succeed in Hollywood. Yes, and that is that is a success. <laughs> yeah, and she's English as well. That's the weirdest of all things. So, uh, But then again, so is Venom. Tom Hardy's English, so, you know, it, it makes sense that you'd have an... But yeah, so I find, but apparently her version was a bit more 
like Saving Mr. Banks, like it was a bit more kind of sticking to some of the facts of the story. Although Saving Mr. Banks makes up so much stuff, it's kind of weird. Uh, but yeah, the, but then, you know, the film, the, the, this film took so long to develop that basically her version of the script kind of got thrown out early on. And then Baz was like, I'll rewrite it. And then I'll give myself three different writing credits at the end of the film, uh, <laughs> which is truly the craziest thing about all of this. Um, and I remember on Twitter when like the, t- the the trailer debuted and I just kept seeing these screenshots of, you know, Baz Luhrmann and Baz Luhrmann and Baz Luhrmann. I was like, what is this? And it's like, oh, that's the credits for Elvis. Um so yeah, uh, I feel like we kind of know where everyone is in terms of judgments, uh, but you know we're going to say it anyway. Uh, we only have two for people who haven't, you know, heard an episode for a couple of months now, and they are T Hanks or uh, no T Hanks. Uh, and I think I'm going to go to Leandra because I feel like hers might be the more puzzling. You know, we might we might not know where she lies. I feel like Kelly's kind of already tipped her hand a little bit as to where she's going to. Uh, go with this. Uh, so I'll ask Leandra, T Hanks, hmm. no T Hanks. I, I would say, kind of broadly, I'm I'm gonna go no T Hanks. Um, it, in fact, if T Hanks wasn't in this, then the film <laughs> might be a yes T Hanks. But, um, but sadly, T Hanks is therefore no T Hanks. Yeah, that I mean, uh, obviously, I'm not gonna say mine yet because obviously I'll ask I'll ask Kelly. Although I feel, you know. You might be on the same page as Leandro on this one. Yeah, I, I'm going to say no T. Hanks, and please imagine me delivering that while swatting him on the nose with a newspaper. <laughs> no. <laughs> no T. Hanks. Yeah. Uh, every time he tries to do that, I guess he was, I guess it was because of his health problems, but he delivered all of his lines, like, as though he was, like, partially paralyzed in the face. Um... I actually I thought that was supposed to be a stroke at the beginning of the movie, but I guess it was a heart attack, so I don't know. But. Uh, yeah, yeah, I think I I think it was a heart attack at the beginning. Um, yeah. But yeah. Uh, Maybe he also had strokes. I don't know. But I mean, I uh, here's here's what I will say. Uh, I like obviously in the trailer, everyone was like, "What is Tom doing? What's going on here? What's up with all this?" Um, and I mean, I would say T. Hanks. Uh, because I think the film manages to overcome whatever Tom is doing. I think the rest of the film kind of gets pat. Like, obviously he's the narrator and he starts and finishes the film, but I think there's large periods where it's just a lot of Austin Butler as Elvis. And I think, you know, it's obviously an Oscar nominated performance. The film is Oscar nominated, which I don't know when the last time Tom Hanks was in a film that got Oscar nominated. It might be Bridge of Spies, something like that. Um, so, so you're saying in spite of... yeah. In, in spite of whatever and here's the thing as well like uh, tom like tom hanks has played this role before he in a film that he wrote and directed that made no money um you know which obviously is that thing you do so like he's used to playing like a manager of like you know a band or something um and so i feel like he should have said to baz lerman you know because obviously he's directed a couple of films himself admittedly the last one was larry Cran, so i i think baz lerman might be like you know hold your horses there fella um but I like I and we wouldn't say that because he's Australian. So we'd say, I don't know, take a shrimp off the barbie. I don't know what Australians say. For, <laughs> um, and so I I think maybe like like, you know, he's he was in makeup for like four and a half hours every day. And, you know, the choice, the choice to do the accent or whatever I feel is probably Baz Luhrmann's. Baz Luhrmann was like, we need like we can't just have Tom Hanks talking like Tom Hanks. Um, and I, I don't know if Tom Hanks tried to do like what was, you know, the southerner voice that. Uh, you know tom parker put on to hide his you know his ancestry but you know they made a choice 
and that was to have tons of makeup and to have a specific accent and i still think the rest of the film kind of succeeds over that and you know obviously i watched it with two extra screens when i saw it at the cinema uh, and watching it today uh, the way it was intended on a tablet um at 1.5 speed um like <laughs> i not for all of it uh, you know only for like a little bit of it um but like i still i still think like the spectacle of it works like you know the the opening like 10 minutes of the fil- this film are insane with the amount of stuff that's going on and the amount of split screens and the different things and the you know jumping through time three different like in the space of 10 minutes he goes through three different time periods and you have two different people playing elvis and you have colonel tom parker narrating crazy stuff over the top like it's like it's a film that has like a very specific like as with all Baz Luhrmann films you know it has a very specific tone that it's setting and you know if you don't like it then you're not going to like it but you know I mostly liked it I was like yeah this is you know like and, and and like I said I'm not even really a fan of Elvis's music but I think Austin Butler kind of overcome the fact that I didn't you know I'm not an Elvis fan and kind of sold uh you know the idea of it the the, the thing is that I, the thing that I thought was really weird is like the one scene that was kind of missing is normally in these biopics particularly musical ones you have them like record a song and then the producer is like i think you've just recorded your first number one and at no point did anybody say that to elvis and i was disappointed about that but then there was hardly anything of him actually recording songs like apart from a few times when he's just sitting next to a piano like singing a song you never see him in the studio recording songs and elvis spent like like he Aside from spending like 50% of his time on film sets for most of the 60s, he spent the rest of the time in studios. Like, you know, his decline only happened when he had time to start taking drugs. And, you know, like uh, there's a story from like uh, Cassandra Peterson, better known as Elvira, when she like met Elvis, uh, like I think in the kind of the early, like the late 60s, just as he started his first like run in Vegas. And apparently like he was turning down drugs, like, you know she was smoking pot and he was like no thank you very much like don't don't do any of that kind of stuff near me so like he went from being kind of straight laced to being like popping pills left right and center within the space of a few years and it was because he stopped going into the studio like every other like every six months to record an album and he stopped shooting films and he like he stopped doing stuff other than just singing in front of an audience at vegas um and i think this film could have delineated that a little bit more and made it a bit clearer that he was very busy during the 60s doing films and albums like literally one to bouncing between the two for like or if you look at his his discography and his filmography it's like this it's like film and an album right next to each other every single so like the fact that he never goes into a studio to record anything during the whole film it's like apart from the very beginning when you see him at sun studio like sun records for like uh, like two minutes just being like oh i'm singing this song and then that's it like and it, i just thought that was a weird part of like his life that they left out was just the actual him being a musician and going into the studio but still even without that you know i really liked austin butler's performance like it's one of those things where when the trailer came out people were like kind of making fun of it and then you see austin butler actually doing it in the film and by the t- like by the time you're getting towards the end of the film you're kind of forgetting it's austin butler like you're looking at him and you're going oh yeah that's what elvis looked like and then they cut to the real elvis and you're like oh elvis didn't have like a pronounced philtrum like he had like a thinner lip like you're like oh like that's what elvis actually looks like Um, I should also say as well, the prosthetics at the end before they do the switch to him turning into before the real Elvis comes on and they had his sideburns. They had to do like a full face prosthetic to put like the extra weight on him. And each of the hairs on the sideburns had to be put in individually. Uh, And I'm like, that's that's dedication to the task. 
Um, you know, that's why they're Oscar nominated. Um, and obviously, we'll find out in a few weeks, probably after this episode comes out, um, if it won anything. Uh, I don't think I, I. I mean, I think maybe it might win some of the makeup stuff, but I don't know because I think the whale is also nominated, and that might that might win in that category. Yeah, Brendan Fraser is probably going to win. You know, Austin Butler's not going to win. I mean, I, I, he might because the thing is, for the last year, all anybody's talked about is Austin Butler potentially winning. So you know, you might have both just give a thumbs down to an Oscar-winning performance from a young up-and-comer. Um, so. <laughs> And if that happens, I'll eat my hat. <laughs> yeah. yeah. At this point, I think it's. Uh, I mean, as we sit here recording this episode, I think it's going to be Brendan Fraser. There's, you know, there's too much kind of goodwill for his, his comeback. Um, so, uh, but yeah. So there you go. That is it. We've covered Elvis. I think we took slightly less than the uh, the actual film. So, uh, congratulations to us. A lot shorter than we did on uh, Cloud Atlas as well. Um, well, yeah. Which, you know, a peak, Cloud Atlas was a, a peek behind the curtain for the people listening at home and for both of you. That is the most downloaded episode of the entire show to this point. It's the number. It's Cloud Atlas is the number one episode. Like, um, oh wow! Yeah, not by like a huge margin. You know, by about maybe ten percent. That's insane because yeah. my audio in that was <laughs> unlistenable. I couldn't even listen to the episode. I was really crushed because there was yeah. some kind of issue it sounded fine when i tested it on my um computer before sending it to you but something happened on the way to heaven so i apologize to all of the people who downloaded that i mean yeah <laughs> you know i guess i think people I thought, may... I thought like no one could ever listen to this <laughs> because i'm wrong i mean it, you know looking at looking at all the you know the analytics on it it did well it did well so you know and uh, i you know uh, you know, I, I don't know how accurate everything is, but you know, people, I like you can tell how many like through episodes when people stop listening because they have like all these different graphs that are like how retention mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff, uh, and it still did quite well. So, you know, uh, wow. Hopefully, this will be as popular. Uh, so let's go to plugs. Is there anything that you wish to plug? I know that obviously, uh, you know, for people who've listened before, you obviously collaborate. So I don't know if one of you wants to take the plugs or if if you have different things you wish to plug. Or if you wish to alternate words uh, as you come up with a sentence. <laughs> no, I, I, think, take it away. I think we'll do a great job if we try and say it at the same time. Uh, but no. no. Leandra and I co-host Rocky Horror Minute, a sometimes updated podcast where we, <laughs> where we discuss the Rocky Horror Picture Show one minute at a time. And so you should check that out. Um, we also have a a secondary podcast that we um, that we are starting up. We've recorded a couple of episodes, and uh, will hopefully be out by the time this gets posted. Um, it's called the DC Hoedown, and it is a, a podcast of um, Kelly and our our friend Oscar essentially sharing their uh their uh lifestyles <laughs> and with you. me a person who you 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 weigh in when you can <laughs> um but it's um it's emphasis on ho yeah so um you'll be able to look up information on that through our website though um rockyharminute.com yes and if you're ever in washington dc on the second weekend of the month we are we are both leads of the DC Rocky Horror cast, so come see the Sonic Transducers. 
second Friday and Saturday of every month. Right. DCRockyHorror.com. Mm-hmm. There we go. Uh, and you can find us on the hellscape that is Elon Musk's plaything Twitter at T underscore FT memory. Until that account gets banned. I don't know why, but I had like six accounts for different podcasts that all got banned. And I don't know why they got banned. And I appealed every single ban and I never heard anything back. Uh, so I'm like, I don't know why, but, you know, the Twitter. It was the terroristic threat. Uh, yeah, the, the Twitter handle for yeah. my like <laughs> clueless minute by minute podcast is banned. So, you, you know, you can't find me there. But for the moment, uh, my Tom Hanks one is still working. So thanks to both you ladies for returning and talking about Elvis. Always. Of course. Thank you for having us. And the next episode is going to be about the Polar Express again. No, that's a lie. I'm no Pinocchio. No. I'm no. Yeah, I, I was doing a Pinocchio thing. I was lying to you. My nose is not getting bigger. No, no it's going to be about Pinocchio. I don't know which is worse. Polar Express. It's, it's the same guy. It's Robert Zemeckis. I used to love you, Robbie Z. And now, I, what are you doing with your life? Song, the world will never bend. Without a song. So I'll keep saying a song. Two.